That we, you know, now that we've hit Ariana Grande, we pivoted to Justin Bieber. I, I, I you know, I'm just <laughs> loving the selection again. That's who this is, right? Yeah, yeah. No, <laughs> this is not. This is a uh, uh, someone by the name of um, Sam Chapman. He was um, from his album uh, Hollandale Blues, and he was part of the Piedmont blues scene in um, Appalachia, uh, which is an historic. Uh, blues coming from the eastern coast of the United States, from Maryland all the way down to Virginia, down to Georgia, and basically the foothills of the uh, of the Appalachian Mountains. Uh, but a real cool style of music because, uh, for a couple different reasons, um, it's very different than what we typically think of when we think of the blues, which is like Delta blues, slide guitar. Um, this had very much more of a folk feel to it. Um, there was a lot of flat picking, a lot of finger picking. It has more of a bluegrass sound to it. Um, and uh, actually, fun little side fact, did you know that the banjo that we typically think of as being more of uh, something you get for like, quote unquote, hillbilly music, was actually a West African instrument that was adopted uh, by a lot of um, a lot of white people in the South um, that really liked the style of music, liked the playing and adopted their own music, which later became country. But all that stems from, um, from these old blues music musicians um, in what they call Piedmont blues, um, which to me is appropriate for a couple of reasons because, uh, well, we are, uh, Adam and I decided we were gonna do some white wines today. Um, how is the weather on the Cape? Uh, it is dreary, uh, yet really humid. So, um, I mean, it, it, it's, it's like Cape Cod. It's the, this is why grapes, you can't grow wine grapes on Cape Cod because it's cloudy and yet somehow still feels like it's 110 degrees outside because there's so much moisture in the air. You just can't. Um, <laughs> so it's the perfect day, you know, to, to, to drink a, a crisp Italian white because it's still really hot. <laughs> So, it, in uh, Belmont, it's just chilly, and um, and you know it's just ironic that we wanted to do some great, obscure, beautiful white wines from uh, an area called Piemonte, hence the music. Um, and it's rainy, and it definitely gives me a bluesy feel, which also makes the makes the music apropos. Uh, but before we forget, as we often do, uh, welcome to Bottom of the Bottle. Um, there it is. <laughs> and uh, for those of you watching the, the video feed, the gentleman uh, who is much lighter than he was a week ago because he cut his hair out of yeah. the toggle. Yeah, uh, you know, it, it's honestly, I was holding out with, with, with the haircut until you played Ariana Grande. Uh, and, <laughs> and, and you did, so there's no longer a need for me to rock the ponytail. So it's, it's, it's gone. Um, I was sad. Very sad to see it go, but yeah, hey, you know, um, what are you going to do? I was getting to the point, you know, and, and your hair is not short. You can say, I got to get this. At, at a certain point, you have to really decide, do I want to continue to take care of this in a way where 
I don't look like a complete disheveled mess all the time <laughs> or should I cut it? And uh, I just don't want to put that much effort into my hair. So <laughs> what are you going to do? What are you going to do? Well, I'm going to drink. That's what I'm going to do. Um, so Adam, what are you drinking today? Ooh, so uh, I am drinking a, I'm um, well, drinking Gabi. Um, and so Gabi, we'll get into it more later. Gabi is actually a grape called Cortese, but I'm drinking, uh, if you can tell the humidity based on how the, if you're watching the condensation on this bottle, I am drinking uh, Michele Chialo's uh, Single Vineyard Roveretto Gabi 2019. Um, Gabi is a, again, we're, we're talking whites today. So uh, white grape, indigenous to Piedmont, um, Gavi is the village in which the Cortese is grown and, and, and come from and so on. Uh, really, really pretty wine on this really, really humid day. <laughs> I am also in Piemonte and drinking a white wine. This is a varietal called Arnais. Um, this is from uh, one of the, the most famous winemakers in, in Italy or in Piemonte, uh, Bruno Giacosa, uh, most notably known for his red wines, but makes a beautiful, beautiful white wine called Arnais, uh, which once again we'll get into later, um, but it's just this gorgeous floral, awesome, to me, summertime, springtime, flowers in the air, white wine. Um, and from one of, one of my favorite wine regions of the world, um, Piedmont, Piedmonte, um, which to me is just, is an incredible place and makes some beautiful, beautiful wines. I mean, look, it's the, like all the places in France we were talking about, like Campania, like Tuscany we were talking about last time, there's this rich, layered, really interesting history uh, that reflects the wines that, that, that come from the region, right? I mean, it's the, we say it every week, I'm going to say it over and over again until the seven of you who keep watching, listening to us get, you know, it's ingrained in you. Uh, the history of wine in Europe is, the, is, is directly connected to the history of Europe, and it's the same in Piedmont. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it, it's, it's an old history, and, you know, we typically think of Italy as being, you know, first, like, either uh, Greek or Roman, but the first people that were actually here, and um, for our friends out in the Boston area um, whose family comes from Ireland, you have ancestry here in, in Piemonte. Because the, the, some of the first settlers here were the Celts, um, right around like 300, 400 BC. Um, and they were actually growing vines to make wine. Um, the Romans didn't get here until about 200 or 100 uh, BC and they took it over and it went through several hands. Uh, to me, one of the most interesting um, groups of people that actually settled here were, um, weren't the Greeks, they weren't the Romans, but they were actually uh, people from France and they were the, the Burgundians, uh, which got here right around the fourth or fifth century. So it's, it's interesting, this lines up with something that I wanted to talk about later, but we'll do it now. Um, we, with Italy, we've talked a couple times uh, with Campania and with Tuscany about how the history is so old for winemaking that there's mythology woven in and there's these stories woven in more so than other places. Um, as I'm drinking Gavi, well, there's a, there's a mythology around where the, where the name Gavi comes from, from the town that it, 
the, the town that gives the area and the wine its name. So uh, right around the fifth century, so the, the legend goes, um, there is a princess whose name is Gabia, who falls in love with a commoner. He might've been a soldier. He might, you know, he was someone of normal repute, right? He wasn't great, but he, but he, but he was a nobody. And she falls in love with him. Her father says, you can't marry him because we, you know, we, it did not happen back then. You don't marry commoners, right? So she doesn't care. She elopes with him and they run off to this small town in Piedmont. Well, her husband is feeling his oats because he's convinced this princess to run away with him and get married. <laughs> and he goes to the local, the, the local pub <laughs> and uh, gets absolutely hammered <laughs> on the local wine of that, uh, of that town and tells everyone that uh, he has married the princess Gavia and her father has no idea and they're happy and they're going to live together forever and so on. Well, obviously this gets back to Gavia's father and he comes to this village and he is just, he's going to wreak havoc, right? Because he's mad she ran off. He told her no. Uh, but when he comes to the village and he sees them, he sees how happy she is and how true and pure their love is and uh, has the change of heart on the spot and then elevates him and bequeaths that town to his daughter and her new husband and names the town after her uh, and calls it Gavi. So that's supposedly where the town comes from and why the, the wine is named Gavi. There's this, this, this mythology around, again, around the area, around the wine and so on. Because, um, you know, someone got too drunk and mouthed off at a pub. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm sure that, um, actually, I don't have anything to follow that with. It's a really, well, it's an awesome interesting. Story. Normally you go, well, actually, that's how I met my wife. That's <laughs> what you have been saying. I, I know, and uh, I know I always say that, so, and she's getting tired of me saying that, because that's, that's not how we met, so... <laughs> um that's awesome so, yeah like that's right around the same time when the burgundians came in he probably you know was a burgundian and that's what the dad didn't like you know um and then like you had the lombards which is the next region over that came a couple hundred years later uh the francs or the franks uh which were the french um really connected with uh the house of burgundy but the real big change and I think it actually does affect wine in, in a lot of ways, would be in 1043 when the house of um, Savoy had uh, taken over this part of, um, of Italy. I mean, it was Piedmont, Lombardia uh, to, the, to the east of Piemonte, um, Sardinia, Sicily were all part of the house of Savoy for hundreds and hundreds of years. And what's really interesting <laughs> is that the first king of Italy, when Italy was unified, wasn't, and yeah, he was Italian because he, he was from this area, but, um, but he wasn't, his ancestry was not Italian. He was the king of the House of Savoy. And um, the, at that time, the king of, of Piedmont and Sardinia, um, and then he was actually the first king of Italy. And at that time, Rome was not the capital. It was the capital of, of Piemonte, which was Turin. Um, 
So a fun little fact that we can let um, our friend Chiro know when he keeps on saying that the that the um, Romans and the Italians, the French need to thank the Romans and the Italians for um, teaching them how to make wine, but it was really the French uh, and the Celts and the, the you know the the House of Burgundy and the House of Savoy that created to me one of the most iconic wine regions in the world. Sorry, Chiro. Uh, he's he's never coming back on now. We just we, we, we you know if he listens, that is he's never coming back on. I don't <laughs> know if he makes it this far when he says he listens, but he's never coming back on. But it, it it's 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 so true, and you, I think you see that French influence more in Piedmont than you do probably anywhere else in 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 Italy in general, but even in, even in northern Italy. Um, so especially with Burgundy. I think Burgundy is the key. So when you, when we talked about Burgundy, you know, uh, several weeks back, what does Burgundy do? They make, for the most part, monovarietal still wines. If it's white Burgundy, it's going to be Chardonnay. If it's red Burgundy, 99.3% of the time, don't quote me on that number, it's going to be Pinot Noir, right? You know, in the, in the couple instances when it's not, it's going to be uh, Aligote, it's gonna be all Aligote, or it's gonna be, it's, it's their monovarietal wines. We're the same in Piedmont. We are, you know, when we're talking our reds, when we're doing Barbera, it's always 100% Barbera. It's usually 100% Barbera. Um, Barolo has to be 100% Nebbiolo. The Arnaise you're drinking is 100% Arnaise. I'm drinking 100% Gabi. The, the, the rules reflect each other. Um, even the way that we refer to the vineyards in, in Burgundy, we have Premier Cru and Grand Cru vineyards, Cru, Cru, Cru. Well, in Barolo and in, in Piedmont and in, even in Gavi and so on, the best vineyards, the most sought after sites, we refer to as Cru's, like we do the French. So it, it is, there's this real direct connection between France and Burgundy, especially with the wines of Piedmont that you don't get in other places, like the, especially the ones we were talking about before. Absolutely. Sorry, I had to mute myself a little bit because I don't know if you guys can hear that, but they're doing some road work by my house. And they stopped. Never mind. They must have heard me. Um, but uh, that's the beauty of recording live. Um, no, absolutely. Like you really see this attention to to monovarietal. I believe you were mentioning you were mentioning earlier before we um, hit record that Chiarlo only does monovarietals. They don't blend at all. Um, Bruno Giacosa doesn't blend at all. Um, there are some producers, you know, like Gaia, for example, which does some really cool blends, but um, for the most part, we're looking at, at wines that are, you know, monovarietal. And there are a few different reasons why. I mean, the, first of all, the soils are very varied, like you would find in, in, um, in uh, Burgundy. But the big thing is that it is, we're a landlocked area, you know. Um, to the north, we have the Alps. To the west, we have the Alps. To the south, we have really the, the fingertips of the Apennines before they stretch down to, to southern Italy. And then you have the Po River Valley, which goes off to the east, which is continental. So it's a perfect continental climate like, like Burgundy. You know, um, warm nights are, are no, uh, warm to hot days, cool nights. So even when it gets hot during the, there they go again, even when it gets hot during um, the harvest time or during the summer, you know, you can get into the 90s 
uh, during July, like lower 90s, by the evening, it's really cool. And so you get really nice ripe fruit and you get a lot of acid in the wines as well. Absolutely. And I think what's cool too about about Piedmont, and we've, we've talked about this before, and I think we've used the term without explaining it, which we do often, because we, you know, it's just you and I talking and we forget that we're doing this for people to listen to. Um, the, all those mountains Manny just explained in, in Piedmont create what's called a rain shadow. Um, a rain shadow is this really cool effect where the mountains basically prevent rain clouds from crossing over and raining in the in the area. It dries the, the climate out. It's protective barrier. You see this in other places like Alsace uh, in France and so on, but it's a real effect. So um, you have this, the, the temperatures Manny was just talking about with those cool, those cool nights and those, um, those warm days, but you also have a low rainfall. So you don't, um, the, the grape is going to struggle a little bit and it's going to ripen. We don't have to worry about berry swelling, you know, over swelling and so on, getting too much rain at one point or another, because those mountains really protect Piedmont from, from extra water. It's a, it's, it's a cool effect and it, and it happened in many places throughout the world. Yeah, and, um, and it definitely helps create the structure of the wines you're having. Um, and, you know, one thing which I think is really cool about Piemonte, first of all, that it is a cool climate, but even when we think about, um, you know, Italian food, it is very, very different here than, you know, what you would find in Tuscany or, you know, Chiro was talking about a very simple piece of, you know, pork with uh, tomatoes and, and um, olive oil. And here, it even the food itself is a little more, I don't want to say it's French at all, because it is its own identity, but you find more of that Northern French style. You have a lot of sausages. You have um, risotto is a classic dish here, which is a really um, hearty, you know, obviously hearty rice dish, but they use a lot of butter. They use a lot of creams. And that is one reason why we well, it's not why we have high acid wines. Uh, we have high acid wines because of the climate. Uh, we have these richer, more fat-based dishes because of the climate, because it's a cool climate and they complement each other so well because of that, that bright acidity. Like the Arnais that I'm drinking is not um, a, it's not a, a typical Italian white, cool climate white because it is a little softer with acidity but it's still more acidic than most high acid wines coming out of California. It's still searing in relation to something like Cortesi or, or to Nebbiolo in particular, you know, the, the, um, the classic red grape of the area, which we will talk about Nebbiolo. We will talk about Barolo and Barbaresco and Dolcetto and, and Barbera. Um, it doesn't have the same amount of acid, but it's still super, super fresh, you know? Um, and I mean, really the heart and soul of Piemonte and, you know, we're trying to be a little tongue-in-cheek because that's how we like to do things. We like to be a little more obscure. They typically are reds and they typically are Nebbiolo as the main varietal. Um, fun fact, uh, Nebbiolo means, we were talking about this earlier today, means little fog. Um, they're not exactly sure why. One theory is that the skin itself develops this um, little film around it that's almost like a, a kind of probably yeast um, that looks a little foggy. But another thought, another hypothesis is that 
you do get a lot of fog coming from the Pearl River Valley. And although you have the, um, you know, that, that curtain that protects from the, uh, from the rain, you end up getting um, fog that'll come in from the mainland or from the more continental part of, of Italy and swoop right into um, Piemonte. And one varietal that does really well with this is the Nebbiolo, that it actually helps Nebbiolo ripen um, because it gives nutrients and it also, but then it burns off by the afternoon and then you get hot temperatures and you get rich ripe fruit as well. Um, and you also get that where my wine is, is coming from. So my wine is from an area called Roero. It's, um, and Arnace is the varietal from, I mentioned before, Bruno Giacosa. Um, Roero, or, or Arnace actually translates to little rascal, like Nebbiolo means um, uh, little fog, uh, because it is a very difficult grape to grow. Um, I think it was a varietal that, that would kind of find its way into other vineyards and sneak into other vineyards next to other vines. Um, and it was not necessarily one of the most favored white wines, but it was a white wine because the acidity is a little softer than Nebbiolo. They actually used to blend it with Nebbiolo. And so sometimes they'll also call it um, uh, Nebbiolo uh, Bianco um, because it just adds a little softer structure. But the producer, Bruno Giacosa, I mean, I got to talk a couple minutes about Bruno, that is a legend. Um, and, you know, Adam and I talk quite a bit about, you know, the, the road of wine, like the history of wine, how things get from one part to, to another part, and how it translates over time. And part of the conversation we had last, uh, the last podcast and the one with Chiro, we talked about traditional traditionalists, that um, Bruno was one of these winemakers during the 50s, during the 60s, uh, that really started revolutionizing how he made wine. It was understanding what's happening in California, what's happening in Bordeaux, um, but what is our history and ancestry. So it's all indigenous varietals that he produces, but he produces wine in a way that has a little more fruit to it, but still maintains the integrity of its history. And he started young, like he was born in 29, at the age of 15. At the age of 13, he realized he wanted to be a winemaker. And at 15, he started working with his father, Mario, and his grandfather Carlo and they taught him how to make wine so he left school at 15 years old he didn't go to anology school or wine school like a lot of people do there was you know something similar to UC Davis but uh, he went straight to actually working um, in the winery and during the 50s and during the 60s you know saw what was happening and was like I want to make a different style of wine so with his red wines they use giant uh, and hopefully one day when we get to talk about Barolo and Barbaresco, maybe uh, the fine folks at Folio will donate a couple bottles for us. Um, but they would use these large uh, Slovenian oak vats called Boti, which are around anywhere between 10,000 and 20,000 liters. They're huge barrels. And there's just not a lot of wood contact. And so you end up getting wines that typically have a lot of acid, a lot of minerality from the fruit. Um, it's older barrel as well, and really can help create some very rustic style wines. But those wines are all finished in new French oak for about six months. So, you know, it's finding that connection with the old world and then heading into the new world. But with Arnais, this is all stainless steel. You know, we get some real 
cool soils. Um, you get a lot of limestone in the soil. You get a lot of uh, clay, which gives uh, acidity, gives freshness. The limestone gives the minerality and finesse. And then we get some sand, which really produces some nice fruit aromas and a little bit of a, that kind of real perfumey aromatic that to me is, is very distinctive with, with the Arnaise varietal. And, you know, it's, you mentioned how Bruno is marrying the old and the new, right? Tradition and, and, and so on. And I think you have the perfect wine to talk about this because I, as you explained, Arnais was frowned upon for, for lots of reasons, but it's a historic Piedmontese grape. And it was going extinct. And actually a lot of people thought that it was gone. And he is like, you know what? Um, this is used as a, this is a blending grape or whatnot. Uh, you know, it's, it's kind of fallen, you know, out of favor, but it's part of what Piedmont is. So I'm going to replant it and I'm going to save it. And I'm going to make it monovarietal and make it beautiful. And so again, like he's, he's being true to the history of the region by using a historic you know, Piedmontese grape, but he's expressing it in a way that wasn't usually done before. Um, again, that just embodying that new unique spirit that that came in the 50s 60s and 70s so yeah uh, I, I, it's just it's just awesome yeah and you know he unfortunately passed away in 2008 so i'm drinking the 2019 vintage and that would have been um one of the first well actually he died in january 2018 rather um so this would have been his daughter bruna's second vintage so his so bruna giacosta um had taken over the winery and she's very dynamic, a force of nature, a great winemaker, great, um, uh, or runs a great wine company and still maintains that tradition her father had that he learned from his family, but is taking this into a new generation. Um, and, you know, I just love the fact that uh, his name is Bruno and he named his daughter Bruna, you know, there's only like, I think there's only 15 names they were allowed to use and that was to name their kids in Italy. That was one of them. The, the, the Italians are as bad as the Russians. Yeah. Right? I mean, a, 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 the Russians, they're all, they're all Alexander or Nicholas. Nikolai. Or, 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 or Michael. <laughs> all of them. And then, I mean, I, I don't know how much, and again, I'm going off on a way tangent here, but the way you, you use last names, but in, in Russia, you, the, the second name that you use, so if you're, uh, I'm, I don't want to mispronounce it, but if your name is Nicholas and your dad was, uh, was Alexander, you're uh, Nikolai Alexandrovich, like as you take your father's name and then put a bitch at the end, basically. Um, and it's, it's, it's just one of those, it, it, it's like, because you, it's the same three names. So they're all, they're all Michael, Nicholas, or Alexander, son of Michael, Alexander. Oh, it's just, it's, it's a mess. And the Italians are the same way. Everyone has to have the same freaking name over and over and over and over again. Uh, everyone in my family is Anthony. Or Lewis. They're Lewis Anthony or Anthony Lewis. My dad's Richard. He's the only one from that level or older that's not Anthony or, or Lewis because there were already Anthony's and Lewis's and they couldn't do it again. So my father's middle name is Lewis because they, you know, they, it's just, it's, and his confirmation name is Anthony because you have to have them all, right? It's just what they do. So total tangent there, but uh, I, I had to vent. Um, I also have a, a family run uh, second generation winery in in Piedmont, uh, the, the, the Chialo family, Michele Chialo. Um, so 
same time frame. We're talking 1950s um, when Michele decided, you know, I want to make wine in in this region that is, you know, um, typical uh, and typifies where, where I am, exemplifies the best of what it can be. Uh, he only makes monovarietal wines. You know, we talked about that earlier, and he mentioned it. Uh, and, and that's kind of what he does. Um, his son, Stefano, is now very involved in, in the process. Um, they own a lot of land in a lot of different places. Um, and again, their, their approach is very Burgundian. They're, they're, they're typifying place um, with their grape. So I have a Gavi uh, and I have uh, Rovaretto. So I don't expect anyone to know what Rovaretto is. I'm probably mispronouncing it. Um, but it is a, it's a single vineyard in the region of Gavi. And it is, it's the vineyard. Um, you know, it, it, it's the crew. It's the most important or arguably the most important um, vineyard for Cortese within the region of Gavi. Um, you know, so it is for all intents and purposes, it, it's, it's the Montrachet uh, of Gavi. Mm. Uh, and, yeah, and, and, you know, it's, it's, it has DOCG status. I didn't think about this until a couple of weeks ago when we were talking with Chiro. There aren't lots of DOCG white wines in Italy. It's a distinction that's saved for, for, for reds, um, mostly, you know. This, and, is also, this is also, and I just found that you mentioned that, and I didn't even think about this, is also DOCG as well. It, I think it's days. really kind of cool and unique that, you know, again, the Reds get all the love, and then there's a good reason the Reds get the love in Italy. Um, but, you know, we have, we're in a single region that's unique, um, that again, that it's always bottling by place, that is very much monovarietal, and we have DOCG wines. And again, just a, a, a quick kind of refresh for, for everyone who either didn't listen before or isn't familiar. Um, DOC, DOCG is the... Um, uh, the AOC system or the ABA system for for Italy, uh, DOCG um, is the is the most regulated area. So uh, we have the most restrictions when we're in DOCG. You know, as far as where it can come from, how it can be made. Um, you know, the, anything from planting density and how much you can harvest and so on. All, all these restrictions. So to make a DOCG wine, so there's a lot of care that goes into it and a lot of rules you have to follow. Uh, and to have two whites from the same region have DOCG status, it, it's it's really cool. Um, that was an aside, but um, yeah. Can, can I can I take can I take a, a crack at pronouncing uh, DOC and DOCG what it means? Uh, I would love for you to do that because right, I can't do it. I can't say ass. I'm, I'm, <laughs> Uh, I'm gonna. There's no. There's no on there. So you're. You're good. Um, I'm gonna uh, try an effect. Let's see if this works. Damnazione origine controllata. Or this. Wait, wait for it. This is the DOCG. Hold on. Damnazione origine controllata garantita. Basically, a controlled origin, guaranteed. That guarantees is guaranteed. So yeah, it's like it doesn't always mean that the wines are better, um, but oftentimes, you know, they they really can be because there's more. You know, its yields are 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 restricted, and and um, how much you can produce is restricted. What varietals you can use, there's it's much more rigorous. You know, 
I mean, the in the old world, so you know, Europe, uh, when you're labeling by place, they that area wants you to feel that the wine you're drinking is reflective of that place. And which is why they have these tight restrictions. Because if you if you loosen them up and let people grow what you know, any any varietal, any blend, and then label it Gavi or Barolo or so on, um, the typicity is gone. And you, you know, you, you're not getting the, the, what that region feels the identity of that place should be. And it's very important to them. Yeah. You know, um, it, it's the, it's one of the, it's one of the cool things about, about Italian, French, German, Spanish wine is that, you know, is you're getting, you're not just drinking the varietal from that place. You're bringing an expression of that area, and what can you learn about that area as you drink it? It's why we haven't done a New World wine yet. <laughs> because... Exactly, and you don't see a lot of um, even in. I mean, Tuscany, yeah, you do. You definitely see some what we call international varietals, which by international they basically mean French. They're not international grapes; they're French grapes. You know, um, typically Cabernet Sauvignon. They do grow some Cab in in uh, Piemonte, but it's it's. Um, it's cooler, or it's about the same in terms of temperature uh, that you might find in Bordeaux, but it's less humid because Bordeaux can be rather humid because it's right on, on the coast. Um, you do see, do see some Chardonnay, which I've had a couple Chardonnays from, from the Piedmont region, which I think are great. Um, they don't taste like Burgundy, but there definitely is kind of more of a sense of, of a Burgundian style in terms of, you know, and Adam and I talked about this before when we talked about Burgundy, when we say Burgundian style, it's not necessarily you know, California is all oaky buttery, but there's more acidity, there's more minerality in Burgundy. And, you know, Burgundy is diverse because you have Chablis, which can be minerally um, for entry-level Chablis, and then aged in stainless steel, and you have Grand Cru Chablis, which sees oak, and even in that small area, you can see a lot of diversity. But there's always this sense and attention towards minerality and acid, and more of a linear structure, and you find that in, in, in Piedmont as well. In, beyond the international grapes, beyond Chard, beyond, you know, Pinot Noir or Cabernet that you might find in these areas. Um, but even within the indigenous varietals, you know, the Roero to me, the Arnais feels, almost feels like wines from, from the Maquinet, like Vire Classe, where you get a little more weight. It's, it's a little creamy on the, on the palate. You still get some acid, some freshness to it. Um, maybe from a warmer vintage where you get a little more of a floral aroma. But there's always something so distinctive, I find, within white wines from Piemonte and um, in some of my weird, odd descriptions when uh, I worked in restaurants, you know, and we would take uh, pignole and you can, you can break them up. We would use them to like make with dishes and, and sauces or, or salads. You can take pine nuts and break them and they're super oily, but then you get this kind of powdery, um, almost sawdust-like texture on your fingers and aroma, and that to me is what I like pull out of white wines from this region. And I didn't even know if pine nuts are, are grow here, <laughs> you know, but, but, uh, um, but I always find that to me, it's such an iconic aroma, you know, within, within a lot of these white wines. I, I love that. So it's one of the, I love that so much. One of the reasons I don't like talking about what I taste, and I've gone over this before, but is yeah, palate is, Palette's a fickle thing from person to person. My palate is different from Manny's palate versus our wife's palate versus, 
Chiro's palette versus so-and-so's. And this is why people who are master psalms and masters of wine who can identify something that's a, a vintage and an area and so on are, are so brilliant and talented is because everything's so diverse to be able to pinpoint these things is incredible. Um, but like, I have not crumpled up pine nuts in my hand and sprinkled them over a, a, a plate. So I'm never going to get that tasting now. Well, you're going to have to try it. Well, I am now, but like, but, 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 but like, so I'm never going to understand until I do that. I'm never going to fully understand that. No, but it's meaningful to you and it, it, it's a fond memory and gives yeah. you an emotional connection to the wine and so on. And, and I guess where I'm going is um, if you're a novice or you're a, a, a casual wine drinker and you don't have that type of memory and you can't get that in depth, that's totally okay. It's beyond okay. You probably have a similar thing. You know, you're drinking a Pinot Noir and you smell violets and you think of your mom's garden or, you know, you, um, you know, you're, you're, you know, you're, you're drinking a, you know, I'm, I'm getting a lot of green apple in my wine right now. You're thinking of, you know, it, where in New England, you were thinking of apple picking when you were, you know, five or six years old with your parents, you have the fond memory. And he, like your palate is your memory. Like, so it, it's the, it's, it's, it's not just science, it's your experience, it's your lived essential experiences. And yeah. that's one of the reasons why wine is such an emotional connection for us is because when, when, when you view it that way and you pull out the, oh, what, what am I tasting? It's not just what you're tasting. What have you lived? You know, how, what are you getting from your life experience in that class? And that's what I love about what you just said. It's that, it's that, it's that memory. It's that vivid memory of that and the connection to a wine that probably you weren't drinking at that exact moment, but you still make that connection. It's just, it's awesome. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm getting emotional. <laughs> I promised I wouldn't cry. Um, you know, but it's but you're right. I mean, it is it is an emotional because it, it experience because so much of our memory um, and a majority of our memory when it comes to uh, the five senses are linked to aromas, and it's something we're hardwired with because it was it was a survival technique when we were still crawling in the forest floor. You know, some of us a little sooner or later than others, and um, you know. We, <laughs> <laughs> um, Arturo would say that probably about the people of Northern Italy, but you know, you, it's something that, that we, it's intrinsic within our uh, muscle memories and, and um, it's something that, that maintains. And as you start, cause I used to think it was a bunch of BS, you know, they're like, ah, oh, you don't smell that until I was sitting in a bar. It was a wine bar in Rutland, Vermont. Um, after I had my white Zen experience, um, and it was a, probably a cheap, plunky California Pinot Noir, but it smelled like Cherry Garcia ice cream. And I was like, oh my God, this, I can recognize this aroma. And, and at that point you get really excited and you start doing it all the time. You really start looking for it. And once you start looking for these, these aromas, it's really hard not to. Um, it's so cool. I had, I'll never forget. I was at a because obviously Manny and I work in the in the wine and spirits industry. I was at a tasting at a store that I was not invited to pour at, and I was really mad because I worked for a very small company, and I needed these things to move product, and they did not invite me, so I was mad. But there was a table that was pouring crew Beaujolais, and I love crew Beaujolais. So I went over and said, you know, can, can I try this? And it was a Moulin Avant, and 
it the glass it was christmas in a glass like i stuck my nose in there and i got gingerbread and and all you know everything that that and you know means cloves and the spices and so on um on the palate i got those awful kind of you know fruit cake um red fruits you know and whatnot uh but then there was this also you know after having it uh, a couple sips going back to the nose there was this piney smell too it's like oh my god like whoever this is just bottled Christmas when I was 11 years old. This is the most amazing thing ever. And I was already into wine when that happened, but I had not had that experience. And it's true. Once you have it and it clicks, you're like, oh my God, this is- the, That's so funny. This is awesome. Your, uh, your Christmas experience is very different than mine because for me, it would have smelled like uh, tamales, um, Mexican uh, wedding cookies, and um, He-Man action figures, and a plastic tree. Yeah, <laughs> it would have been my I, my Christmas memory. And I, disappointment. I, it would have smelled like disappointment. Well, I was going to say, I, I left out the family arguments and the... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know, the, the, the after cocktail, uh, you know, arguments you know, that go on to it. That part wasn't, you know, but I, I, I've repressed that memory. So that's why that doesn't kind of <laughs> the glass. But so um, I want to hear a little bit about um, on your wine. I want to hear about the grape itself. Cortese is a grape. Like, how would you describe it for someone that's never had, you know, like Renee's being kind of like soft acid, a little more fragrant and floral. Like, how would you describe Cortese? Yeah. Um, so I... For me, Cortese, um, medium body, uh, you know, and so guys, when, when, when I say medium bodied, uh, it, it's the weight, you know, when, when you're holding the wine in your mouth. So um, light bodied wines, Pinot Grigios, think like skim milk, you know, um, full bodied wines, think heavy cream, you know, oaky buttery Chardonnay type things. Medium bodied like 2%, 1%-ish milk. So I, I think this is medium bodied in that sense. Um, you know, I, I think in general, it is, it, it tends to be a, a fresher, more fruit forward wine. Um, so again, especially when it, when it's done in stainless steel, um, you get those um, kind of fresh, um, I'm getting a lot of green apple on mine. Uh, I tend to get some citrus, you know, I'll, I'll get lemon. Um, I'll sometimes get like orange zest. Uh, occasionally I'll get a lime, but, but, but green, you know, those, those kind of sour-ish, you know, green apple, lemon notes are really what I, what I get. Um, there's some floral notes that come too, which I think are really pretty, white flowers, uh, you know, um, and I, I, um, I hate saying honeysuckle when I don't get honey, because I think people, you know, it, it's inferred, but yeah, but yeah like, um, wisteria, um, you know, honeysuckle, white, white flower. Wait, wait, what was, what was that one you said? Wisteria? Wisteria. Wisteria. I think I had that. I think I had that once, but I took some, uh, I took some <laughs> antibiotics. <laughs> I'm sure you did. Uh, it's, it's one of the most important flowers on Cape Cod. So, you know, it's, which is where I am. So it's a memory. What's the, what's the, um, what are like the soils like in, in, in that area? Like, um, so we have a lot of clay. Um, and we, which is good. So we, we said there's not a lot of rain in in Piedmont. Uh, clay is great for water retention. Just ask my front yard and the swamp that I have uh, out there right now for um, 
the rain that we had this morning, uh, but, but clay is really good for water retention. Uh, and also uh, Roboretto in particular uh, has a lot of uh, iron rich clay, which uh, iron basically helps uh, oxygen travel up to the vines and uh, is great as far as, um, you know, helping with ripening and development. It, it, it gets, again, I mean, uh, the vine's a living, breathing thing. So oxygen flowing through, it's really, really important. Um, you're supposed to preface me, you're supposed to warn me before so I can go, geeky science fact. You, you, you already used that. When you yeah, were pronouncing the <laughs> Take your fix. I've been waiting. I've been waiting for the echo fact for that. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Uh, but yeah, it's the, you know, where I am, like I said, it's, it's a lot of clay, but like we were saying before, like with Burgundy, uh, we have a lot of varied soils in, in, in Barolo and, you know, a lot of unique differences. What I think what makes um, Roveretto unique for Piedmont is that uh, the, the rich iron with, within its it, it, within that particular vineyard's soils so that's awesome yeah i think you know what's really cool about i think both both producers you know um Greenwich Ecos's family comes back a little further with winemaking his grandfather you know so third so Bruna is now fourth or fifth generation winemaker um uh, Michele Carlo is you know second generation Stefano is second generation you know um or Michele's second generation, right? And Stefano, his son, is third generation. You know, they're still relatively new when it comes to, when we think about how old Italy is um, and how, like, you have the Frescobaldis, you have the Antonoris and Tuscany that were making wines for, the Dittercasoles for, and the the um, Chiarcetos for almost a thousand years, you know, and, and this well, was all nobility, but here, and it very much, mimics I think in a lot of ways Burgundy where you had a lot of kind of gentleman farmers you know um, where like Tuscany was very much like Bordeaux Bordeaux was a lot of aristocrats and a lot of big houses you think of like the Rothschilds and and the Lafitte family in in Latour and when you go to to Bordeaux um, it's all about the Bennies it's all about the Benjamins and they people are the winemaker will answer the door if they answer the door, but you're going to see people in like three-piece suits. In Burgundy, they might be wearing, um, you know, nice clothes with mud boots, you know, because they're still farming. And in Piemonte, they can be very much the same way, where Tuscany, there's a lot of historical aristocracy, nobility. And yeah, there's that in, in, in Piedmont as well, but you have a lot of independent farmers that produce amazing amazing wines you know and they were a part of that school that decided hey I don't want to make the same wines we're going to make it better you know um and that can that can draw back even a little further you know there was this uh for those of you that don't know the history of the wine world there was this little parasite that um basically devastated a lot of vines in Europe they devastated uh, like French vines it started in France um, there's a lot of vines that had gone extinct in France, and it devastated a lot of the vines here. It's called um, Phylloxera, and it's basically it was this thing that came from the from the the Americas, and somehow it made its way across the Atlantic. I'm sure somebody wanted to plant Concord grapes next to Bordeaux, um, 
ew, but you know, and then these, they didn't realize there were these little insects on it that started killing all the vines and the European rootstocks were not resistant to, to this. Um, and it spread through Spain, it spread through, throughout Italy, and it spread through, through the Piedmont region and it devastated a lot of land, you know, and, and I think in some ways there was a benefit to, to this because it forced a lot of winemakers to think a little more deeply in where they're planting, what varietals they're planting. Um, and as it thinned the, the herd, so to speak, um, they, they started really thinking in terms of, it had to be less about quantity because you didn't have as much land under mine that you had 20 years before. And, and when Italy really started getting past this, you're looking at 1910, 1930, and by that point, Giacosa is born, and 40 years later, you have the 60s, and you have the revolution, or the, the Rassinante, the renaissance of Italian winemaking, um, and I don't know, I think it could have been, I think it could have been a helpful little bad thing that happened to the wine world. Yeah, it, um, it, it, it's, everything happens for a reason. You know, you have that one annoying positive friend that like, you know, you're, you're, you're out and you get a flat tire on the way to wherever you're going. And like, it's an adventure. No, it's not, <laughs> jackass. The, there's no place to get a tire. Yeah, everything happens um, for a reason because somebody broke a glass on the road and that person's a jerk. Oh, exactly. But, <laughs> but, but it's true. It's the, you know, um, phylloxera was a huge adversarial moment. It was a huge piece of adversity for uh, the European, I mean, well, actually the wine world writ large. I mean, outside of what, um, South America and maybe Australia and New Zealand. Um, but but even even in America, like uh, phylloxera was, was, has had its moments and, and the response to it, uh, I think is, is really special. You know, how... how it would have been very simple to just be like, well, we can't figure this out. You know, who cares? Um, we'll, we'll, we'll plant something else. We'll do something else. We'll go into something else. Uh, but, but the response of, of Italy, of France, of Germany, of Spain, um, you know, when they had to do it in California and Oregon and so on, and these other places that have had to deal with it is, is really special and speaks to, um, you know, the, the human spirit and industriousness and, and our creativity and ingenuity as, as, as people. Um, but also how important just wine is to, to these regions and, and what, how important they become to us where, you know, we're, we're not going to let these things just go away. We need to find a way to save this because it's not just a beverage. It's an expression of who we are. It's why the bottle is labeled Gavi and not labeled Cortese because it's, it's, you know, it's why it's Barolo. It's why it's Burgundy. It's why it's Bordeaux. It's, it's the... It's not some random thing thrown into a bottle. It's special. Um, and uh, I don't think we can do that in, in five minutes. We're going to have to talk about this more, I think. Yeah, you think so? Phylloxia? I always say phylloxia, it's phylloxera. And I don't, yeah. to me, um, phylloxera to me sounds a little bit like it could be, you know, like a, like a, a dancer or something like that. Or, or a death metal band, you know, kind of thing, <laughs> you know. But I mean, listen, uh, uh, words are hard, as everyone has learned from me. Uh, so it's okay. There, there's a million things that I can't pronounce. 
yeah, it's uh, there's certain there's certain things, certain words that I get. I was doing this uh, event the other night, and I was talking about um, Cava from Spain, and I was talking about a specific producer, um, Cordonu, and I always get that confused with Condriu. Um, Condriu is a region. Nothing alike. Yeah, nothing alike at all, except the first three letters, and and you mix them up. You can find the, the connection, but I can never say it right, ever. I always have to stop and, and rethink and rethink and rethink how I'm saying it. Um, but uh, yeah, I think I think uh, phylloxera would be a great conversation because I think it was, you know, we look at it as this devastating thing, but in the end, I think it was quite beneficial to the wine world. Yeah. You know? On a total side note, uh, anyone out there listening who happens to supply wine, Manny and I don't sell a Condrieu right now and we really need one. So um, send samples. <laughs> I'll take well, it. Um, I'll take it. <laughs> the great thing about doing uh, phylloxera is that maybe we can start with death metal. I think I already have kind of our lead in. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, speaking of which, I think we have a sales meeting soon. Um, should I lead us out with uh, some more Piedmont Blues? Let's do it. Awesome. Until uh, next time, everyone, thanks for checking us out, and we will see you soon. I love this song. Is that a lightsaber behind you, by the way? It is. Yes. The whiskey and you got a gin. I got a whiskey and you got a gin. Let's both a drink, baby gal. Get drunk again. Hey, whiskey, what's the gin? Hey, whiskey, what's the gin? Let's both a drink, baby gal. Get drunk again. Well, it don't make me no different how drunk you may be. Or said you don't hold back, baby gal, from loving me. Cause I got the whiskey and you got the gin. I got the whiskey and you got the gin. Let's both one drink, baby gal. Get drunk again. Yeah, baby, let's drink. I got the wife boat and you got the tub. Let's stick them together and rub, rub, rub. Hey, wife boat, what's the tub? Hey, wife boat, what's the tub? Let's stick them together and rub, rub, rub. Well, it don't make me no different how tired you may be. Or said you don't hold that baby gal from loving me. Cause I got the wife boat and you got the tub. I got the white bone, you got the tub. Let's stick them together and rub, rub, rub. <laughs>